I have a story for you today. I some come eagerly. Grab a seat on the floor. All right, you want to look up at the screen this morning. I have a I have a little present for each one of you. And maybe there might be some who didn't make it all the way down here, but you can come up after the service today on the front pew. You're going to find a little box full of little tiny traffic signs, and you can take one home, okay, as a reminder of something, because these signs remind us of the Bible. So here's a traffic sign. This is a traffic sign that gives a direction to us. It's an instruction. What does it say? It says stop. That's right. That big octagonal red sign says stop. Let's look at another one. Well, this is a sign that shows that there's a man who's collecting for Kiwanis. He's selling peanuts. Isn't that what it says? No, that's not what it means. That means it's a man with a flag. There's workmen ahead. So be careful. Let's see another sign. This is a yield sign. This is another sign that gives direction. We have a warning sign. We have signs that give direction. You must yield to other traffic. It's, you have to stop and wait if somebody else is coming. But if nobody's coming, you can go, all right? Here's one that also gives direction. It tells you, slow down, because Pastor Wick often drives too fast. This is one Pastor Wick needs to see. Let's see the next one. Here's one that says, do not enter. So you come up to an entry. Oh, that's not for me. That driveway is only for coming out. Let's see another one. Oh, what does this mean? It's a deer, that's right, there are deer crossing there. There's a famous story. In fact, I actually heard the recording of the call to the Department of Transportation in Minnesota. A lady said the highway department just came out and they just put a deer crossing sign up and it's only 20 feet from our driveway. Could you please tell them to move that deer crossing sign further down the road? Because I don't want the deer crossing in front of my driveway. True story. She might have been a Swede, I don't know. But anyway, next one. Oh, this means what? The curvy road, that's right. Watch out, there's turns ahead, especially important in the fog. How about another one? Oh, here's a sign that tells you where you're at. Actually, I've seen this sign because I've been on Route 15 North, and uh, the speed limit on Highway uh, Interstate 15 is 80 miles an hour. Pastor Rick likes that one. That's a good one. But this tells you where you're at tells you what's coming up. And the, you know, the Bible's like these, these signs. The Bible has signs that give direction. They, they tell us what not to do and what to do. And sometimes they tell us where we're at. Some Bible verses help us with that. Let's see another one here. This one also, this is the law. You can go 25 miles an hour or you can go 75 miles an hour, depending on what road you're on. If you're in town here, which one is it? If you're in a city, it's 25. But if you're on Interstate 80, 75, that's right. I like that one. But that's the law. It's like the Bible. The Bible tells us things we can do and can't do. Next one. All right, sometimes signs just give us information. This one comes from someplace in the mountains in western Pennsylvania. It tells us there's a, there's a lookout point that we can go to. Let's see another one. Uh-oh. Does the Bible have any signs like this in it? No, it doesn't, no. But sometimes other religions do. Confusing sign. Boy, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I don't think I'll go anywhere. How about another one? What does that mean? Yeah. 
Good luck. That's what that one means. How about the next one? Caution, falling cows. You have a lot of these in Nebraska? No, because you don't have very many hills. You have a lot of cows, but not many hills. All right, let's see another one here. Uh-oh. That's confusing. All right, let's see another one. I, I give up. I, speed limit, 25. School days only and all. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't even. All right, next. Let's see another one. If you, got, if you come to this sign and you're obeying that sign, you're never going to go anywhere, are you? You're just stuck where you are. Now, there, all right, let's see another one. All right, uh-oh, do not read this sign under penalty of law. Oh, no, I'm glad there aren't any signs like that in the real world. How about another one? Uh-oh, more confusion. You know, the good thing is the Bible doesn't have any confusing signs like that. It's very clear about what we have to do in order to get into heaven. Trust Jesus as our Savior. All right, let's see another one. I like this one. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. Also, the bridge is out ahead. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of messages like that in this world where the important things don't get enough emphasis. The Bible always puts the important things first. How about, I think there might be one more. Not sure. That's it? That's it. All right. All right, so don't forget... Come up after church right on the front pew there. There will be a whole little box. You can each take a little sign home with you to remind you of what the Bible is like. You can get one after church. No. After church. After church. All right. Bye. Well, we've come now to the 26th chapter of the Gospel of Acts. You have a devotional guide that has lots of additional information in it. I'm going to focus on basically four things that come out of this chapter, but we're going to read it, and then we'll go back over some of the things that come out of it. Some, probably not all that we could get, but some. So Paul, we saw last week, is, is now standing before Herod Agrippa II and Festus and uh, Agrippa's sister, Bernice. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. 
Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. For to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that only, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So may God bless this reading of his word. There are four things that I'd like to draw from this passage. First of all, evidence that the Old Testament and New Testament are connected. They're not contradictory. They have the same message. Secondly, that the Christianity of Jesus is the same as the Christianity of Paul. And thirdly, 
that James, the book of James, is totally in agreement with Paul and his teaching, and Paul's teachings are the same as those of the Apostle James. And fourthly, that the gospel is rational. And then additionally, there is the fact that intellectual belief is not the same thing as saving faith. But first of all, that the Old Testament and New Testament are connected. There's a couple places that we see this, but one of them is in the sixth verse here. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul was on trial because he believed in the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection specifically of Jesus. And he believed that the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah had been fulfilled in Jesus. It's absolutely the case that the resurrection was implied in the Old Testament promise. When the Sadducees argued with, the, with Jesus against the resurrection, Jesus defended the resurrection by quoting from Exodus 3, chapter 6, which says that God is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Not was the God, but is the God, because Jesus said, all are alive to him. Jesus taught life after death. And ultimately, the resurrection is required in order that God may fulfill all of his promises to the patriarchs, which promises we participate in even as Gentiles, because it includes the kingdom of God, salvation by grace through faith, eternal life in heaven with God. And Paul asks a very pungent question in verse 8. Why is it thought impossible that God raises the dead? Why indeed? If we accept the truth that there is a God and that God is all-powerful, why couldn't he bring the dead to life? And indeed, why couldn't he keep all, in a spiritual sense, alive to himself even now? It's not uh, simply, say, blue smoke and mirrors when we say of a brother or sister in Christ who has passed away from this life that they have gone to be with Jesus. That's what Paul believed was going to happen to him when he died, that it is better, he says in Philippians, the first chapter, to depart and to be with Christ. He still had work to do in this life, and God would spare him some years longer, but he was looking forward to that day when he would be translated from this world to the next. This is God's promise to us, and it comes from the Old Testament. The faith that we have in Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament, the reality of Christ's life and death and resurrection. It was all laid out beforehand. And all of the saints in the Old Testament were also, like us, saved by grace through faith. Yes, they had the Old Testament law, like us, what does the law show us? It shows us that we are sinners, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. The difference between the Old Testament saints and us is they looked forward to something which they saw only dimly, that is, to the final sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, of which the temple sacrifices were merely a foreshadowing, a symbol of that atonement by shed blood that was to come that was to be affected, effective for all time. They look forward to that to which we look backward. Indeed, we are absolutely without excuse because we know exactly how God has fulfilled 
his Old Testament, his Old Covenant promise to his people. The death of Christ on the cross, foretold, foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are connected inextricably. There is a prophecy that is fulfilled. There are prophecies yet to be fulfilled, both in the Old and New Testament, but it's all one piece. Only difference in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. In the New Testament, we look backward to the cross. There are some who believe that the Christianity of Jesus is different from the Christianity of the Apostle Paul. There are people today who are, they call themselves red-letter Christians. Maybe some of you have a red-letter Bible. I don't know if that's the source of it or not, but it was thought at once of, uh, to be a very handy thing, a good thing to have a Bible in which the words of Jesus were printed in red. The only problem with doing that is it indicates somehow that there might be a, a, a higher level of inspiration in those words than in the rest of the Scripture. I think if you're going to print the Bible in red, you need to print it all in red because all of it, even the genealogies in the Old Testament, are the Word of God. It's all the Word of God from beginning to end. The teachings of Paul and his epistles are the same as the teachings of Jesus. And what we learn in this passage in verses 16 and 17 is where Paul got his instruction. Jesus said to him, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Where did Paul get his theology? He got it directly from Jesus. This is exactly what we read this morning in the communion service, that what he received from Jesus, he passed on to us. Is it different from what Jesus taught? Absolutely not. Jesus taught in a little bit of a different context. His approach was, first of all, to the Jews. They were receiving their one last chance before the door was opened to the Gentiles. That's what's happening here. The Christianity of Jesus is the same as the Christianity of Paul. And Paul's mission is also our mission. What is his mission is in verse 18, to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is the mission that we have received, to turn people from darkness to light with the message that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul. That's our job. Same message, same Christianity, same theology. We have that same mission. I love verse 19, by the way. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. How many of you have heard of black elk, the Lakota Indian? Pat has, yes. Some of you have. Black Elk Speaks. It's an interesting book. Um, I can't remember the name of the author, but it was somebody who'd interviewed this chief, I think in the very early years of the 20th century. He was a Lakota medicine man, and as a young man, he received a vision. And the vision led to the, the ghost dance religion among the Sioux Indians. This was his, his sort of uh, 
What shall we see? His spiritual experience, his Damascus Road experience, which was probably some kind of a satanic deception. But he had a vision. And the story of Black Elk Speaks is really how he failed to carry out that vision. He failed to live according to it. He didn't correctly share his vision with his own people. He lived with a sense of failure with it. Paul could say he saw a vision, only his was real and was of the Lord Jesus, but he was faithful to it. There's an addendum, by the way, to Black Elk's story that amongst our secular teachers never gets much emphasis. He converted to Christianity. He realized in the later years of his life that the real fulfillment of the vision he'd been given for his people was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he became a teacher. Now, for us Protestants, we may be a little troubled by the fact that what he converted to was Roman Catholicism, and he became a catechist for the Roman Catholic Church. But he was teaching about Jesus and believed that Jesus was the fulfillment. But as a young man, he got in a vision, and he was unfaithful to it. I wonder if, if sometimes we don't feel that way. We've been given an agenda from Jesus, a mission to fulfill. Are we carrying it out? And may I be able to say, may you be able to say, as we look back on our life, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, the third thing we see in this passage is that what Paul teaches is not different from what James teaches. I'm not comfortable disagreeing with people like Martin Luther, but here I have to disagree with Martin Luther. Luther did not like the epistle of James. He called it a right strawy epistle, or an epistle of straw. He felt that James's emphasis was on uh, salvation through works, justification through works. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the second chapter of James. And we'll look at verses... 14 through 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from works, faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and so on. So... Luther saw that and said, well, James is teaching justification by works, maybe in addition to faith. It seems pretty clear. Here's the problem. Paul also taught the importance of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know that we are saved by grace through faith and not, not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 10, but why were we saved? We are saved in order that we might do the good works for which God has designed us. That's Ephesians 2.10. And if there's any doubt at all, all you have to do is read through the book of Titus. 
We've got Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, and 14, Titus chapter 3, verses 1, 8, and 14, where he says, what? What is the purpose of God saving us as an end in itself? No, so that we might do the good works. We are to devote ourselves to good works. The, the issue that we've got with James is a problem with translation of a word. The word justified can also mean vindicated. We have to remember this. The Bible is not a book of systematic theology. Words are not always to be translated identically because they have a different meaning according to context. And when, when James uses justified, that same Greek word that Paul uses, he's using it in a different sense. He's using it in the sense of vindicated or demonstrated by. And Paul says the same thing. How, how do we know that this faith is genuine. It results in salvation and good works. The equation for Paul is like this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Salvation is grace plus faith equaling salvation plus good works. If somebody claims that they're saved, but there's been no change in their life, there's been nothing produced, no good works are there, then we have to say, where is that faith? That's a dead faith. That's not a real faith. That's simply intellectual assent and intellectual assent is not the same thing as saving faith. You remember one of the first children's stories, maybe the first one I told here was the story of Blondin and his crossing the Niagara chasm on a tightrope. And he did so in a number of times, and he did it with a wheelbarrow full of sand, and then he came back and he said, how many of you believe I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and go across that rope, on the, uh, across the Niagara chasm? And everybody raised their hand, thousands of people, yes, we believe it. Then he said, okay, you, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. Remember that story? See, intellectual assent is saying, yes, Blondin, we believe that you can do that. But saving faith says, I'll get in the wheelbarrow. I actually trust you, Jesus, with my life. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered him up for me. James and Paul are on the same page. James is simply saying that good works will always result from saving faith, which is the teaching of Paul. This is the word of the Lord. James justified means vindicated. It means something a little different. In, 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 in Paul's use of the word uh, to, to be justified means this transformation that takes place inwardly in which we really do get into the wheelbarrow. The fourth thing we want to emphasize here is that the gospel is rational. According to uh, what Festus saw, Paul was losing his mind. But Paul says, no, that is not the case. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. If somebody thinks the gospel is crazy, they're giving evidence that they are carnal. They're living in the flesh. It's only according to the lights of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 13 and 14 and 4.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.13, etc. Paul warns about this. There's a level of thinking that's very fleshly that cannot see the purpose of faith, cannot see the rationality of it, but in fact it makes perfectly good sense. 
Certainly C.S. Lewis was one of the most rational people who ever lived. And he fought in his mind against Christianity. He writes this in his autobiography. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen College night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. It was the sheer rationality of the gospel that overwhelmed him. If God is really God, then all these things that the gospel teaches us can be true. And faith says simply and affirms, not only can it be true, but it is true. To the spiritual mind, acknowledging God in thanksgiving and gratitude, the gospel is the ultimate rationality. Then we see here finally what we already alluded to, that intellectual assent is not the same thing as saving faith. Agrippa believed in the prophets, but he believed without any repentance and faith that would transform his life. I like the old King James translation of verse 28, where he said, and I hear in my ESV and many of our modern translations, it says, in a short time you think to make me a Christian, but the King James says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. The saddest words ever uttered almost persuaded so close I see the truth I believe that it's true but I will not yield to the truth and give my life to Jesus as the Apostle Paul did we need to repent and to believe the gospel I was gonna start this message with a story you know I like stories so and I was thinking how can I illustrate what it was like for Paul and then I thought, this is also a nice paradigm of the Christian life. Paul was in the hands of the Roman legal system, and he had been for two years. And on this day, when he stood before Herod Agrippa II, there was certainly a, a lively hope that he would be released because Agrippa understood all of the controversies of the Jews, Agrippa actually believed the Old Testament prophets. He could see how it all fit together. He could see how Paul had done absolutely nothing wrong, either to the Romans or to the Jews, and, and could agree and maybe arrange a release. And as a matter of fact, what does Agrippa say? He says he hasn't done anything deserving of death. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could have been released. It's the third time, by the way, that Paul has been given a not guilty verdict by a Roman official. I hope our justice system works better than this, that you don't get a not guilty verdict and are still held in, in, in prison. It was in November of, nine, of 2007. I got a phone call uh, from somebody back in Detroit. It was a fellow who'd worked part-time for us as, with the youth after our full-time youth guy left in August and our youth program needed some, needed some help and so on. This is a young African-American guy. And uh, I, I had to take over the middle school youth group, Pat remembers those days, made my life busier 
than ever. I, I was in the middle of working on my doctorate, and now I had the youth group on top of everything else to look after. And so uh, Jermel became my right-hand man. And he was a big dude, about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, extremely athletic. And he was just terrific with the games with the kids. And we had 40, 50 middle school kids every week. So I did the Bible teaching, and Jermel handled the fun stuff. And uh, I, he was just a great guy. I got to know him quite well. Did camp with him, uh, retreats with him, and so on. So I'd seen him. Well, I, uh, I left Michigan in, in uh, January, end of January 2001. There was an interim guy. We'd hired a guy to be full-time youth pastor. There was an interim guy there at the time, and, and so Jermel worked with him for several years after that. And what happened in 2007, Jermel had moved away, was living in Los Angeles, had come back to visit. While he was back, uh, he was arrested for statutory rape. Uh, a, a girl who'd been in, I don't know, 10th or 11th grade back when he was with the youth group accused him of, of raping her. Uh, a number of times, of course, statutory rape, not that she was, wasn't consenting, but she was underage. And, uh, and so Jermel was calling up and asking me to be a character witness. Well, I hadn't been there at the time when these incidents happened. This happened after I left, but at least I could be a character witness because I had never seen him do anything that would suggest that he, would, he was open to doing anything improper or was trying to do that. Not a, not a thing. His body language was never leaning into, but it was always away from, you know, if a young lady approached him. It was literally, you know, keep your distance. Uh, and, and just a terrific young guy. And I knew some other things, too. I knew that uh, supposedly this stuff had happened in, in a boiler room at the church, um, but none of this added up to me because, for one thing, he didn't have a key to the boiler room. It was always kept locked up. It was in kind of a sub-basement, so that didn't make any sense to me. And, and then, finally, the church was used all the time. It went from being a place that was rarely used to being a church that was always used. We had a, day, a daycare center that operated from 6.30, 6.30 in the morning until 7 at night. The daycare had a full-time custodian. He didn't go to work until about 6 o'clock, and he worked till midnight. There were just people in the building all the time. So I, I was happy to be a witness for him. But I got in agreeing to do this, I gave up a part of my life because I became involved in the court system. So first there was the journey to Detroit, and they paid my way, this family, Jermel's family, and, I, and they got the cheapest flight. That meant I didn't get the flight to Detroit. I flew to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta to Detroit. And, uh, and I put myself up for a couple of nights, and then I went to court. And I discovered it wasn't anything like Perry Mason. I knew all about the court system because I watched Perry Mason. And the witnesses always sit, you know, right there in, in the courtroom, right? And then they get called. Perry calls them down. You know, the judge calls them down, and they come up. And I wasn't allowed in the courtroom. I was in a separate room. We were looking through one of those uh, two-way mirrors, so they couldn't see us, but we could see them. But I wasn't in the courtroom, and I had to sit there and 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 sit there. Well, various witnesses were called. And then finally I got my turn, and I was the uh, defense attorney asked me to tell my story, and then the prosecutor questioned me rather half-heartedly, I thought. And I told my story, what I just told you, that I'd never seen anything like this. And, I didn't, and then she said, could this have happened? And I said, listen, let, let me tell you about the building. And I told her how very difficult it would be to find a private place in that building to fool around. We just, you know, you would never count it because people would walk in on you and so on. There was always people there. So, so I went through all that. And, and, and I just I realized when you're in the court system, you just got to give up 
your, your time, your sense that I can control what's going to happen next. It's now in somebody else's hands. It's in the hands of the judge and of the system. And how much more so if you were the defendant in that situation? Happy ending to the story. Jermel called me up the next morning. The jury was out for less than an hour and returned with a not guilty verdict. So I, I believe that justice was done. I won't go to explaining why I think that was, but I, I think that I was right about his character and the fact that there wasn't really an opportunity to do it. But I learned something from that, that sometimes life involves just giving up any expectations that you're going to be able to decide what to do next. Paul was in that situation. He had no control over what was going to happen to him. He hoped that he'd be set free. And he wasn't just been, being held in custody, he was being held in chains because that's how they did it. For two years he'd been in chains already. And he would continue to be wearing chains as his appeal to Caesar went on. And then I thought, this is also the Christian life. God has given us a mission to accomplish as individuals, as a church. We would like to plan out every last detail and predict how it's going to turn out. Good luck with that. Because we're not in charge. We can make ourselves available. We can give ourselves some training. We can be ready to do it. But it's up to God to provide the opportunities. It's up to God to provide the power. It's up to God to provide the results. Do you get that? That's, that's extremely frustrating for us independent Americans, especially. We think we can control everything, and what is the absolute truth is we're really not in charge of anything. All we can do is put ourselves in God's hands. And you know what? God does some pretty amazing things if we're willing to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. As we saw this morning in our Sunday school class, he knew how to put together a personal testimony and did it forcefully, and you used it to change lives, to be a witness to the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we can be like him in this regard, and Lord, like him as well. We pray, Heavenly Father, that a spirit, for a spirit in our hearts that is willing to yield to your control. Certainly, we want, to, we want to prepare. We want to make ourselves available. But, Lord, we leave the results to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being in charge. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand?
Now may God himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part and keep you sound in spirit, mind, and body without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted. He will do it. Amen. <laughs> 